I want to begin this sermon by mentioning the fact that the New Testament writers regularly spoke about Moses, and they even would compare Moses to Jesus with some regularity. They'd make a comparison between Moses and Jesus. For example, you can mark this down in your notes, um, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17 the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, the Scripture declares, quote, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we see this again and again in the New Testament where these comparisons are made between Moses representing the Old Testament, Jesus representing the New Testament. Another example would be Hebrews, chapter 3, um, uh, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the scripture reads, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of your confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, talking about Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more honored than the house. So we see this time and time again where comparisons are made between Moses and Jesus. And here in Acts 7, in his defense sermon, Stephen too compares Moses to Jesus. This would be necessary for him to do so because of what he was being accused of. Um, Remember in chapter 6, verses 10 through 14, we saw what was taking place with Stephen. He was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs amongst the people. Verse 8, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Verse 10, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Remember, that would be the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses and the law, and he was accused of speaking against the temple. This matter of Moses was huge, because at this time, historically, we know all the sects of Judaism held Moses in esteem. There was almost like a renaissance of Moses taking place, whether amongst all the sects, whether the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Samaritans, the Qumranians, all of them. So this accusation that Stephen was blaspheming Moses was a particularly potent accusation because of what was going on at that time historically. So Stephen had to address Moses in his defense. And he makes a comparison between Moses and Jesus in doing so. The comparison Stephen makes in his defense in bringing up Moses is to show that though the Jews lauded Moses, their history showed they had actually rejected Moses. 
And by comparison, they were also now rejecting Jesus, the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. So Stephen begins here about Moses in verses 20 through 22, here in Acts 7. And he states, at this time Moses was born. Okay, Joseph's stuff is over with. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So here we see Stephen pointing out exactly what's going on here with Moses. He then begins to point out their first rejection of Moses in verses 23 through 29. So God in his providence keeps Moses safe. God finds him pleasing. And yet the Jews reject him. Verse 23, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, two Israelites fighting, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So in this passage, Stephen appeals to the early history of Moses to demonstrate the Jews had rejected Moses prior to the deliverance from Egypt. Early on in his life, rejected by the Jews, who, of course, they're all lauding now and accusing Stephen of attacking. So Stephen appeals to this history, but the Lord isn't done with Moses. He's had to flee. He's over in Midian, and he lives there for 40 years. Look at verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Imagine that. You think God has something special for you to accomplish in the earth with your life like helping your oppressed people get free. Things go awry, and you literally now live 40 years just as a quiet family man over in some foreign country. Got to kind of keep your head tucked down a little bit there. 40 years goes by, 40, and now all of a sudden God visits him. And that is how things can be in our lives even. We know the Lord wants to use us for something, but his time is not always our time. Surely Moses had been faithful to the Lord in how he conducted his life during all those years in Midian. And we should never stop doing that. We always live according to his word, faithful to him. Amen. But the Lord has those epochal times for us when he is doing something special through our lives where he calls us to a particular task, and we know it's of him. It's birthed in our hearts. We feel that fire, 
that thunder in our bones, the fire in our heart, the thunder in our bones, and we know this is something of God, that he is birthing, and I know Moses is experiencing all that at this point with this burning bush. And look what the scriptures and Stephen go on to say about Moses in verses 31 through 35. It says, When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have now come to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, remember, prior to deliverance, verses 23 through 29. Stephen says here, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Just because things don't go good when you think God has something for you and there's difficulty along the way doesn't mean that he still doesn't have something for you. Continue to live faithful to him. He'll birth it and bring it about at his time in his way. And often his time and his way is very different than anything we could ever write or imagine beforehand. In verses 36 and 37, Stephen says, He, talking about Moses, brought them out, talking about the children of Israel, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. And we all know that history. And in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, 40 years. We know all this history the great things that were done, the hand of Moses. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother and him you shall hear. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Every scholar on the planet believes it's talking about Jesus Christ. And clearly, that is who Stephen is applying it to, is Jesus Christ. He is setting the stage to make the comparison of their rejection of Moses and their now rejection of Jesus. The history of the Jewish people's rejection of Moses and the law and now their rejection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's setting up. This Moses who you laud, who you venerate, that Moses, which we're all having a renaissance about, Here in Judaism at this time in my life? Yeah. The history is we have by and large as Jewish people have rejected him. And and we've rejected God's law. And now we're rejecting Jesus. Doing the same thing that we did to Moses, now we're doing it to Jesus. That is what Stephen is setting up here. And look what it says in verses 38 through 41. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, God's law, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, 
saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Here he is, already has shown their rejection of Moses prior to the deliverance from Egypt. Now here he's showing their rejection of Moses subsequent to their deliverance from Egypt. And look how they write Moses off in verse 40. Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All that's gone on with Moses, and now they just reject him out of hand, things are better, right? They're out of Egypt. They got all this booty, you know, from the Egyptians. They're chilling out on the countryside, not making bricks every day, and the taskmaster's whip being applied to their backs. And that quickly, they shove off Moses, and once they reject Moses, who's God's representative in the earth, they immediately want a replacement, and of all things, it's some dopey golden calf. The very kind of dopey things they saw the Egyptians worshiping when they were back in Egypt. And they want to embrace that. When one rejects the Lord, it always leads to idolatry. Whether an individual or a nation rejects the Lord, it either leads to individual or corporate idolatry. Man worshiping something is inescapable to man. Worship is inescapable for man. He will worship something, even if it's his own sick, sappy self, even if it's the state. In fact, atheism always goes hand in glove historically with statism. People reject God's rule and they replace it with the rule of some other. And when they reject God and embrace the religion of atheism, they make the state into God. And that's the hell we live in in America today in all of Western civilization. And the Christians are so stupid and dopey, they've lapped up to it and don't even know the difference between how Christian people should live and pagans live, how a free people live and how a people in bondage live. They think their idea of freedom is kind of sexual licentiousness they want to imbibe upon, not realizing that's actually slavery. It's bondage. Stephen then goes on to show how the rejection of Moses and the law, those living oracles, verse 38, remember chapter 6? That's what he's being accused of, rejecting Moses and the law. Stephen then goes on to show how the rejection of Moses and the law led to increased rebellion and rejection of the Lord. In fact, it was their whole history of the Jewish people. It was the rejection of Moses and the law, the rebellion over and over again, and to highlight this in his sermon, Stephen points to Amos, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, and he quotes them right here in verses 42 and 43. He says, Then God turned and gave them up to worship 
the host of heaven. See, it's inescapable for man. Worship is inescapable. He will worship something. And when they reject the God of the Bible, this is the dopiness they end up at. God turned and gave them up to the worship, to worship the host of heaven. It is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Repham, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. The idolatry they got into was so awful and extensive that it even went as far as Moloch worship, which was child sacrifice. And we live in a nation today where people sacrifice their own sons and daughters on the altar of convenience, murder them through abortion, so that they can have more money in their pockets and have an easier life to live. And that's evil and it's wicked. And it's as barbaric as mankind has ever been. We think we're so intelligent and civilized. We live like baboons and like barbarians, shedding the blood of our own sons and daughters in this nation, while the church turns a blind eye to it and says, oh, well, whatever. All your actions on behalf of the preborn, they don't change anything. We'll just live in our self-centered cocoon. It's wicked to watch. Rejection of and rebellion to the Lord always leads to idolatry. Man inescapably replaces the Lord with another or some other, even the state, even oneself. Now in verses 44 through 50, we see where Stephen addresses the charge against him concerning the temple. Because remember, there are two main charges. One was the rejection of Moses and the law, and the other was his rejection of the temple. So in verses 44 through 50, we see Stephen's defense regarding his rejection of the temple. He's addressed the matter of Moses and the law, and now he addresses the matter of the temple. And in verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. The tabernacle of witness. Do you know that everything about the tabernacle was designed to give us a picture of Jesus and our relationship to God through Jesus. In fact, about 20 years ago, actually this was the early 90s. Oh man, that's really sad. Oh, this was like 30 years ago. Close to 30 years ago, I preached a series of sermons that went for weeks and weeks, probably 15 or 16 sermons going through the tabernacle. Somebody brought that, those sermons up to me about two months ago and was like, you need to put those sermons online. So I'm going to track them down, right, and um, get them off cassette and get them over to the digital and try to get them up online. So the Tabernacle of Witness, this is what... And of course, it was taken down, right, and it was put back up. They moved with God, with the Tabernacle. Totally different than a temple, which stays in a stationary place. And it's a beautiful, awesome architectural building. And I've always found people, I mean, I'm the first guy to get all embalmed, uh, you know, all enthralled with the architecture of old buildings or beautiful buildings, you know. But it's sickening when people do that with the house of God. 
There's something weird about that. Let me talk a little bit about that. So in Stephen's defense, the first thing he talks about is the tabernacle. Why would he do this? Because the tabernacle was esteemed by the Jews of Stephen's day for a number of reasons, which Stephen points out here in verses 44 and 45. The first was, it was in use while they were in the wilderness, a time considered exemplar for Jewish history. Second, it was made according to the exact pattern given to them by God. Third, it was central in the nation during the conquest of Canaan by Joshua. And fourth, it was the focus of national worship until the time of David. So the tabernacle was held in esteem amongst the Jews in Stephen's day, even though they loved the temple and wanted to keep the temple. There was that nostalgia, that wouldn't it be awesome again to go back to that? Because God never said retire the tabernacle. Rather, it was man who wanted to build him a house, namely David. God was fine with the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was all the rage for the best years of Israel's history. And then things changed. Man always wants to build God a house. God seems more controllable that way. Like he's our little pet that we put in a building. Man loves real estate. There's something that's bizarre about man. Oh, they got to have a real estate. I've talked to so many Christian ministers. This is about, well, we got all this real estate. They'll tell you about their latest building program, their buildings, their real estate. I find it vomitous. It's always been this way. And listen to me now. Listen to me now. Stephen understood that the mobility of the tabernacle was a restraint on the status quo mentality. Stephen understood that the mobility of the tabernacle was a restraint on the status quo mentality. A tabernacle is far less to protect. It's far less opulent. I mean, the covering was goatskins. And look what the temple was made out of, all the gold and all that stuff. It's less opulent. It's less institutional with all the impending corruptions that come with buildings. And I could tell you a thousand stories about Christians' buildings and their real estate and how it changes hands over the years and this is deplorable. Remember, the religious leaders had a lot to protect. I talked this, about this in two, maybe three sermons earlier here in the book of Acts. The religious leaders had a lot to protect. The religious and civil leaders had a lot to protect. We've covered that already in earlier confrontations with the religious and civil authorities here in the book of Acts. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of ease. There was a desire to maintain the status quo. And the temple contributed to that. This thing of buildings helps keep the status quo the status quo. It becomes part of the problem of seeing God's people reformed, repaired, repentant. 
because it creates something that was never designed by God to be there to begin with. This wonderful building. You know, when I was in Bible college, they taught us if you build a good building, people will come just because of the building. Now, there's a reason to get people to come to your church, because you built a beautiful building. Vomitous. Whatever you use to get people to come, you have to keep doing that to keep them there. If they didn't come because they love Jesus, they're repentant, praise God, they're saints to gather with, to fellowship with, to serve with, then all you got is a stupid, creepy moose club on your hands. And that's how most churches operate in America today, as creepy moose clubs. And it's sad to watch. Things change from the tabernacle to the temple. But Solomon built him a house. So the tabernacle was all the rage. Solomon builds him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? This is a direct quote from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. A direct quote by Stephen from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. You may recall the Lord allowed a house to be built for him. He did not initiate that. He just allowed it as a concession to David. Remember David, the man after God's own heart? He had even grown fat on wealth and ease, and he wanted to show his appreciation to the Lord by building him this opulent house. Why should I have a greater palace than God has? That is wacky thinking. And you know how many Christians think like that? And they put their emphasis on the real estate, on the building. It's an absurdity. And they'll go into debt, huge volumes of debt to do it. They'll, you know... Toilet so much good money, waste it needlessly for their buildings and the upkeep of their buildings. You know, the early church met in houses. There were no buildings till the third century. There's a goodness about that. There's a freedom, you know, about all that, let me tell you. What I've seen in my short life is, Good people on fire for God, they do great things, then they build their building, and then they blah, 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 live their little lives, and they kind of fade, you know, like the horse that was in the lead, you know, at the Kentucky Derby, and then he fades, just before you get to the finish line. And then, who's waiting there? Oh, all the institutionalized Christians are waiting there, the worst of the stock, to make sure the status quo continues, that the Moose Club continues. And it just becomes a vomitous pile of sewage. And it perpetuates itself for decades and centuries. Generations. It's evil. There was mobility with the tabernacle. And it was a goodness. They followed the lead of the Lord. They weren't bogged down with their possessions, their building and their real estate. And now that Stephen has responded to both accusations, he's responded to both allegations, he's responded to both charges, all which came from false witnesses, 
He now brings the hammer down in good Old Testament prophet fashion. Look what he says in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Oh, my word. Could you imagine how many, how many Christians and ministers have you talked to? Oh, you should never talk that way. Okay. Like, you mean like Stephen, stiff-necked and uncircumcised? Right? And did you ever notice those who appeal to us and try to act condescending towards us, how they're better than us, and, oh, you didn't say that nice enough, and that's why they didn't listen to you. You know, they would say the same thing to Stephen. You wouldn't have been stoned if you would have just did it like us. You know? It's vomitous to listen to, vomitous to hear their words. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He goes on and he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Just as they had rejected Moses and the law, they have rejected Jesus Christ. They have, in fact, betrayed and murdered him. And the comparison has now been made between Moses and Jesus, and they stand guilty. And how do they respond? With repentance and humility? With brokenness and sorrow? No, but with hatred and disdain. Why? Because someone was shaking up the status quo. Their wealth, their power, their ease was threatened by the preaching of Stephen. And understand, Stephen was not just some lawless soul running around trying to cause trouble as some are wont to do in the name of Christ and Christianity. No, he loved the Lord. He knew this was a setup and he did not pee on himself, but rather stood true to the Lord, declaring truth and pointing to the sin in their midst. And so they responded as they did in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But the little soft ministers of today who want to rebuke everyone because they didn't say it quite nice enough and if they would have, they would have liked you and responded positively. What do they do with this? What do they do with so many other instances in Scripture? Have they ever read the Bible? And where is the, you know, sinner's prayer here in Stephen's sermon? Where's the rest of the gospel about Jesus and justification, which only makes it legitimate? Your sermon's only legitimate. Your street ministry's only legitimate if those things are taught. Where is it here? It's not! In fact, I've been looking for it in all the sermons so far, haven't I? In the book of Acts. I don't like you out there with those signs. You're out there with those signs, those pictures. Where's the gospel? Where's the gospel here? It's everywhere just as much as it's out there when we're out there with them photographs. Indicting this nation for the innocent blood that it's shed letting them know they stand guilty under his righteous judgment unless they turn from this innocent blood. 
He will destroy this nation. But we've reduced Christianity to this little thing, little soft thing. You know, we bring people in and give them gifts and rewards. Yeah, there's churches doing that all over Milwaukee today. Trying to imbibe people to Jesus with gifts. And then saying their soft little things. Where Jesus is just like this little sentimental altarpiece that you put on your mantle. You know, and you go to him every so often, you know, when things are hard. You know, like you got a flat tire. Whew, that was so hard. I got a flat tire. Why don't you try ministering in the name of the Lord and see what comes upon you? As I've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been going through it for family worship, and so we're way ahead in family worship at our house from where we are here at church. I'm just left again, think as I haven't gone through Acts in a long time, thinking to myself, have, have Christians ever read the book of Acts? Have Christians... Have ministers? When I look at the form of Christianity that's prevalent amongst us, and I look at the Word of God, there's a strike contrast between the two. So here he is, Stephen, about to become the first martyr of Christianity, the first martyr of Jesus, and the Lord opens up heaven, as if things aren't going bad enough for him already. You know, it's like, he just rebuked all these dogs, you know, for their religious and wicked behavior, right? And then God has to open up the heavens and let him see Jesus standing next to the Father. (laughs) Well, that's going to go over like a lead balloon, you know, with these guys. This isn't going to give them any brownie points at all, you know. So, if he was hoping, maybe if I said something about mercy... You know, or something like that. Maybe I can still get out of here alive. It was vanishing at this point. Because God opens up the heavens. He opens up and he sees Jesus. Verse 30, verse 56. Uh, verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he couldn't just keep it to himself. Verse 56, and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This very Jesus who they rejected is standing at the right hand of God and he tells them all that. Oh, man. I mean, he is not following the American church plan here at all. He's got some serious, this dude, he deserves whatever happens to him. As a most Christian minister, he deserved that. Well, he just did it like us. So, it goes over like a lead balloon. Verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their cloths at the feet of a young man named Saul. Hence, we have our first martyr in the Christian faith, his name being Stephen. The witnesses were the ones who knocked the person down and threw the first stones. We know that historically. And they laid their coats at Saul's feet, who's introduced here for the first time and who's going to have a remarkable 
transformation. Young men at that time were viewed as being between 24 and 40 years old. They were the ones who knocked him down and threw the first stones. And before Stephen dies, or as the scripture says here, sleeps. That's just a euphemistic term for dying, sleeping. Stephen says two things. He says two things. In verse 59, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here we see him emulating Christ in his death. Keep your finger here and turn to Luke 23. Remember, Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23. And remember, both of these books originally were distributed together before the New Testament was formed. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here, Stephen emulates that as he's dying in service to the Father, even as Christ did. And secondly, keep your finger in Luke there. Secondly, in verse 60 here of Acts 7, it says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And this emulated Christ also. Look at Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's very reminiscent of what Christ said. Whose sins we forgive will be forgiven. Whose sins we retain will be retained. That doesn't mean these guys get a free carte blanche. They had plenty of other sins that would still put them in hell. But they were forgiven of that sin because of what Jesus said. They were forgiven of that sin because of what Stephen said. And they'd be forgiven of the sin if they killed you if you said the same thing as they were killing you. You'd be forgiven. They'd be forgiven of that sin. It shows, it's an ex, it shows an expression of the commitment and forgiveness shown by Christ. We see the same thing here with Stephen. We see in all this that those who hold false or distorted views about God will beat up on or persecute you. We see in all this that those who hold false or distorted views about God will beat up on or persecute you if you faithfully serve and follow him. They will actually think that they are doing God a service while they beat up on and persecute you. And they can actually convince themselves of that fact, that they are serving God by persecuting you. And Jesus spoke to this in John chapter 16. Turn there. The Gospel of John chapter 16 and verses 1 through 3. Jesus getting ready to be crucified and he's got all these things to say to his disciples. And part of it was verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. 
And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. And it can be, quote unquote, the people of God who do it to you. The Jews were the people of God at that time. They had a distorted view of God, and look what they did to the Christians. Look what happened to the Christians by the Catholics' hands during the Reformation times when they had a distorted view about God. And here we see the first martyrdom of a Christian. And notice the progression. This is the third confrontation with the civil and religious authorities recorded by Luke. In the first, remember, there were threats. Acts 4, verses 17 and 21. Acts 4, verses 17 and 21. In the second confrontation, it resulted in flogging. Chapter 5 of Acts, verse 40. Chapter 5, verse 40. And in this third confrontation, we actually see stoning, death, martyrdom take place. Two final things I want to mention here, and one I already did. Where is the parroted prayer? Where is the rest of the gospel? Where is it? It's not there. Here's the point. Not every sermon has to have that part of the Word of God in it. And that's a fact. And that sermon did not. Did not talk about repentance, justification, or any of that stuff. And a sermon doesn't have to have that for God to do His work in the hearts of men. We want to fabricate salvation for men. We make little prayers for, repeat this prayer. We have this little procedure and then poof. And most of them are false converts who never really came to know Jesus. But you get to walk around and brag and say, oh, I've let down 25 people to the Lord. Hey, look at all the stripes on my belt. You know, that's what we want. Guess what? God regenerates men without our little formulas. He regenerates them. When I came to know Christ, I walked into a building. Nobody sat down and shared, you know, the three spiritual laws or five or how many there are these days, four, whatever. And then said, now parrot this little prayer after me and poof, you're in. Nobody. I was simply in a church. People were worshiping God. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, overshadowed me. And for the first time in my life, I felt guilty for all the bad things I had done in my life. The Holy Spirit was convicting me of my sin, and I wept for an hour and a half through that entire service and was radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. These little formulas that we want to get everything down to for our benefit are baloney. You declare the truth of God's word, God works in the hearts and minds of men. We tell them how you obtain right standing, amen, but we don't have to do it every time, and what we have to say is only legitimate if we do that. Wrong. Wrong. The scriptures say wrong. And the second thing I want you to notice is 
Stephen didn't get martyred for simply believing in Jesus. In fact, you know what? If you look at the vast majority of martyrs down through the ages, precious few of them got martyred simply because they didn't, simply because they believed in Jesus. Almost never does it happen that you, you, you're brought to a place. Do you believe in Jesus? That isn't what happened here. That isn't what happened in 90% of the martyrdoms that have happened over the years. It has something related to their knowing Jesus. But it's not because they believe in Jesus. No one's standing there with, you know, an axe. Do you believe in Jesus? You know? And that's what most Christians are waiting for. Well, I can go along with anything. I can obey anything the civil authorities say. I can believe it all, live it all, agree to it all. Because they haven't asked me to deny Jesus. But they've denied him already in a thousand different ways. I look at the present state of Christianity. I've used this analogy before. It's still true in my life. I see this massive skyscraper of dung. That's American Christianity and all their theological poop. And I'm standing there with a teaspoon in my hand. Where do we begin? Oh, we got a teaspoon. Right? That's where we're at. God will reform it. He will break it. And he'll use his judgment to do it. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. He will judge his people. He will judge his church. Because it's incapable of reform at this time. It will not reform itself. And God will bring his judgments upon us in order to bring reform and purify his bride as he has in times past. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and praise to you that we had this time in your scriptures today. And we ask, O Lord, that you would use it for good. Um, Things that I could have expressed better and I didn't build it in their hearts and minds, O God. Bring verses their way this week as they open your word. Or even as they hear others speak about you or listen to a sermon, bring other passages their way to build in their lives upon what was proclaimed here this morning. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would keep us all hungry for you, desirous of you, to live for you, to seek your face, to make what days we do have on this planet, which are short, to count for you, O God. Lord, we just ask and pray that you keep our hearts hungry for you, clothe us in humility, embolden us by your Spirit, and guide us in our deeds. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There is no communion this morning. God bless you.